0: Good morning to you. Morning. This is uh, usually an eight hour course, sixteen hours with translation. We don't have to do the translation, but we've got to figure out how to squeeze this into two hours this, this week and next week. so it's really packed uh, it's um, this week. I won't get next week. oh okay <laughs> I'll do it all today. yeah. Um <clears throat> I sound like an auctioneer here, uh, uh, so needless to say, I've had to trim it down greatly. But uh, there's still a lot of stuff to talk about. So let's uh, let's begin, shall we? Um, <clears throat> I I don't like having to read usually. Uh, this, this it's really Really hot, as it says. Um, I, I don't like having to read. Uh, I would rather be able to just stand here and talk. But because of time constraints and stuff like that, I hope you'll forgive me. I, this is the uh, condensed version and stuff. Just add water to it. Now, um, yeah. Most apologetics courses uh, begin with uh, philosophical or, or scientific reasons for how and why we should believe in God. And they depend on secular philosophy or scientific method to try to prove God's existence. This course that I teach is is different because I put it together from a newsman's point of view, I, and I really don't know of any other uh, one that starts quite that way. Um, one colleague from the journalism industry, Lee, Lee Strobel, who's we have some of his books here. Uh, he was a former reporter and editor for the Chicago Tribune, and he set out to uh, write an anti-apologetics or, uh, anti-apologetics book from the viewpoint of an atheist to prove that this whole thing that we believe is false. Um, <clears throat> he failed. <laughs> and at the end of his investigative and reporting journey, he became a believer in god and the and the good news of the gospel of christ and now he's a a christian writer um I started from a different perspective. I wasn't trying to disprove the existence of God. I, I knew what I believed about my Christian faith. My life has been spent in the church. I can't think of a time that uh, I didn't believe or accept the, tr- the, uh, the truth of the, of the Christian faith. As a teenager, I made a conscious commitment of my life to God. And as I grew older, I knew that my faith worked. I could see it in my own life. I could see it in the lives of other people. But what I could not do was to defend my faith intellectually to those who raise tough questions about that faith. It was not until I became a professional newsman and editor that I began to find the answers I was seeking. <clears throat> the way the Lord did that was by getting me to understand that I could apply my skills as a radio and television journalist to this question. So I spent uh, 45 years reading, writing, and reporting the news. For 37 of those years, I was the Pennsylvania broadcast editor for uh, the Associated Press, the world's oldest and largest news agency. Uh, I was in charge of the daily news report that went to hundreds of radio and television stations and networks, what I wrote and edited, went went around the world, and after the invention of the Internet, uh, it appeared daily on Internet news services. And after I retired, I went back to work for AP part-time for another three years, so I was with them for a total of 40 years. My job was to determine whether the information that was coming to me as an editor was true, and then to write and edit the stories and reports objectively without commentary or editorial opinion. If I determined that the information I had in front of me was true, I would be the one who signed off on the story and said that it could be published, or broadcast. If I felt that uh, information was not correct, or that the story was untrue, my job was to send the reporters back out to continue working on the story until we had it right. Only then could I put my name to it and say that this could now be released to the public. My name, my reputation, my personal integrity was at stake for every story that came across my desk um, and there were plenty of them. The computer counted up the number of words for each story, and we determined that at the end of each week, I had written the, written and edited the equivalent of two full length novels every week mm-hmm. um, now if if i couldn 't be trusted, then i couldn 't be in that job because the larger issue was that it would discredit the AP and its reputation and integrity, and the AP is famous for setting the standards for journalistic excellence around the world one hundred and forty six years uh, very well more than that now, very much was at stake for every single story that passed through my hands and God, God began to gradually show me that those skills that I used every day to determine the truth of news stories could just as well be applied to my Christian faith. I had to ask of every news story that I wrote or edited in my career as a journalist, how could I be sure that this was true? I also taught journalism for Marilyn Button at Lincoln University for a short time. So here's some of what I told my students they had to do to establish the truth of a story that they were working on. And I've outlined these, uh, listed them on this paper that you have in your hands. Uh, If you want to add to that, you know, take some notes, that's that's fine. Go right ahead. Um, Number one is go to the source of the story and ask questions. Moses did that with God at the burning bush. When God told Moses to tell Pharaoh to... Let the Israelite people go from their slavery in Egypt so that they could worship him. Don't forget, that's the second part of that command, so that they may worship me. Moses asked God, well, who shall I say sent me? And God answered and said that his name was I am that I am. Uh, That's going (laughs) to the source of the story. Uh, Number two, look for observable facts, what people saw and heard, <clears throat> excuse me, what they experienced. Jesus' ministry is an example of this. People saw what Jesus did, they heard what he taught, they observed what happened as a result, and they wrote down much of that. We have that as the historical record of God's truth in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Number three, separate fact from opinion or speculation? Yours or others? Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And and they answered, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah or, or Jeremiah, um, or, or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the, the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. Jesus wanted the answer based on what Peter knew personally. He didn't want other people's thoughts or opinions. And Jesus got the truth because God revealed it to Peter. And really, that's a question that we all have to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? The answer will determine where you spend eternity. The Apostle Paul wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here are some more instructions for journalists. Get two or more sources to confirm the information. Those who are in a position to know. The Mosaic Law, the law that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai, required two or more witnesses to confirm the truth of something, anything. For example, in Deuteronomy 19.15, it says, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And Jesus applied that same passage in Matthew eighteen. Um, And we use the same principle in our modern courts. Seek eyewitnesses. A good journalist seeks eyewitnesses. The Israelites saw what God did for them, especially when he freed them from slavery to the Egyptians. God even commanded the Israelites to hand down this, this news story, from generation to generation at the feast of the Passover as a, as a reminder of what the Israelites and, and the Egyptians saw God doing in delivering Israel from slavery. In the New Testament, the Gospels are full of eyewitness accounts of, of what Jesus said and, and what he did. Another thing is, is to, a good journalist gets direct quotes from people. All through scripture are the recorded statements of what people said, what God said. Journalists include quotations from people to show that what the reporters are writing is not their opinion, but what eyewitnesses saw and heard and said, their own words. A good journalist must check and recheck the facts and information. There are four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, his miracles, and his teaching. And while each of the gospels is written to a different audience, the accounts agree with one another. We must also compare historical accounts. We go back in history and see what was recorded. Jesus is always referring to the Mosaic Law and the Prophets It is written, it is written. The teaching was for the Jews. It was for their it was their only scripture. We didn't have the New Testament yet, but Jesus was saying, It is written. We find confirmation in writings also that are are known to us to be historically accurate and yet aren't part of our scripture. It's what we refer to as extra biblical accounts. Good journalists must be skeptical and ask questions. He or she must not take anything for granted. Nicodemus had heard what Jesus was teaching, but he came to Jesus personally and asked him what he had to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus told him. This is the one that annoys everybody. The journalist must confirm even what seems to be obvious. Well, that was a stupid question. No. When the women showed up at Jesus' tomb on their first Easter Sunday and found it empty, they, they ran to tell the disciples. The disciples didn't take their story for granted. They ran to the tomb to see for themselves. They confirmed what the women had said. Thomas is another example. You know, poor, poor doubting Thomas. You know, he, he He gets a bad rap. <clears throat> but I see him... a good reporter. In John 20, the disciples tell him that they have seen the risen Christ. Thomas hadn't been with them at the time, so he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, Thomas was with the disciples when Jesus appeared to them, and he invited Thomas to come and check out the, the nail prints for himself. And Thomas's sight became his belief. A good journalist must also get his information from others and not inject his own personal opinion into the story. Dr. Luke, you know, the physician, wrote a meticulous account of Jesus' life and ministry. And then he apparently went on to write the book of Acts. Uh, to expand on that story and to tell what happened after the resurrection of Jesus. And Acts is filled with stories about the start of the Christian church. It's, it's not just Luke's opinion of what happened, it's the historical account of what was happening. Good journalists will ask the basic questions, the five W's, you know, who, what, when, where, why, and how. You should ask those questions about any part of the scripture that you study, and uh, you'll see that the answers are there. The scripture tells us. A good journalist should also be certain. If he's not certain, he should say so. There are several places in Paul's writing where he he says he doesn't have a specific word from the Lord about something, so he is writing his opinion based on what he has been taught. An example is when he addresses issues of married life in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And let this let this story take you uh, where where it will. A good journalist must be willing to go where the facts and the story lead. Who would expect the Bible, God's story? I call it his newspaper because it's the story of what he's doing in this world. Uh, Who who would expect it to end the way that it does in the book of Revelation? It's an amazing conclusion. The book of Revelation is the fulfillment of everything that began in Genesis. And if you go and you compare the two side by side, you'll be amazed at what you find there. Uh, Revelation fulfills the things that God began doing at the beginning in in Genesis. And you you and I would probably not have written that kind of an ending to the story, but God has. And the facts of the story take us there. So don't let the Scripture, don't study the Scripture with preconceived ideas. Let the Bible speak to you as you study it. And you'll be amazed at what God can teach you. Uh, These are are just a few of the rules that I applied to my search for truth in every news story that I wrote and edited in my career as a journalist. And the Bible stands up to this kind of scrutiny, this kind of examination. If the material in the Bible had come to me as an editor, I would have to say that it meets all the criteria required for a truthful and accurate story. And I would have to give it my approval as an editor for publication. As if God were going to do that, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, Dick Lawyer says. That. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but if that, the point is that it meets the criteria. Um, there's one other point. We can know it's true in our souls, in our minds, in our hearts. It's not just that the facts are correct. It's that we can experience the grace of God inside of us as the Holy Spirit opens our minds and our hearts to the message that's in these pages. He convinces us of the truth of his written record, and we meet God personally in the pages of this book. And the truth of what is in this book agrees with the personal experience that we have with God on a daily basis. God confirms the truth of what's here to both the scholar and the peasant. Part two of this three-part session today uh, is about reason. It's reason is where most of us start when we try to make sense of our world, and especially of spiritual matters. So let's begin with what we call a worldview. I think um, my colleague Chip Hard, who was here the last two weeks, referred to a worldview in in his teaching. Um, All people, excuse me, all people have a worldview. It's, it's, a way of looking at and understanding the world around you. Uh, it may be a very simple worldview. Uh, it may be very complex. But we really can't function in this world without some sort of worldview. It's the sense that we make of the, of the world around us. It's the way we interpret what we experience with our, our senses and think about with our minds. And part of that worldview includes man and what he is. Ask anyone, you know, who, who are you? Where where did you come from? What, what's your purpose in this life? What's important to you? And that person will have some sort of answer. It may be a very pessimistic view of life. It may be a very simple one. It may be one of great energy and purpose. But we all have a way of looking at life and trying to. To understand it furthermore, furthermore our worldview includes how we know anything, how we understand life around us. It includes thinking, education, reading, writing, speech, many things. and our worldview assumes that assumes that we can know things that we can understand things. The question, however is how do we know that what our understanding is, is correct? And to answer that, we have to look at where our knowledge comes from. There are two main sources of knowledge, for the purposes of this course at least, two main pur- uh, sources of knowledge that determine a person's worldview. His source may be internal. Man starts from himself, or it may be external. His source of knowledge begins with what's outside of him. If our source of knowledge and understanding is internal, how can we really know that what we are thinking and understanding is true? You think life is all about this, and I think it's all about that. Our opinions are maybe completely opposite from one another. Maybe you believe that life has no meaning, that there's nothing in this world that matters, that life is, is not worth living. Or maybe you believe that it is, uh, that life is what we make of it, and so we should have f- fun, be rich and comfortable, and do whatever we like until we die, because after death there, you know, there really isn't anything at all. So we just cease to exist. you yeah, know. Or maybe you don't believe that at all. You think that uh, there is a meaning to life and a, and a purpose for your existence and that we go to some better place when life on this earth is over. How do you know? Okay. Boy, we journalists are... Annoying people, aren't we? <laughs> Maybe your source of knowledge is, is, <clears throat> is external, excuse me, what comes to you from outside of you, but how can you know that what you're thinking and understanding about life really is correct? In fact, is anything correct? Or is it just your opinion versus my opinion? Is, is there such a thing? as truth objective truth is is there a meaning to life do we continue to live beyond this world and if so how do we get there what awaits us on the other side of this life how do you know as for both of these sources internal and external how do we know that what we think about them is true are we correct? Who's the authority? Is there an authority? Who can say for sure? The good journalist asks, how do you know? What we'll show in this session is that man's knowledge involves reason, revelation, and faith. Faith. Revelation is what we see in the world around us. Reason is how we think about that world around us. And faith is what we believe about the world around us. Reason, revelation, faith determine how we act in the world around us. Little history lesson. This is painting with a broad brush. I realize five hundred years before Jesus came to earth, God began preparing the Gentiles to hear the gospel of Christ. The Jews, the the people of Israel, had been elected by God to be His missionaries to the rest of the world, calling back to Himself the people that He had scattered in Genesis chapter 11, after the story of the Tower of Babel. The trouble was that the people of Israel fell away from their calling to be a light to the Gentiles, and they largely failed in their missionary endeavor. But, thank goodness, God's plans are never thwarted by human failure. And while the Jews were wrapped up in their own problems with idolatry, their sin, they had a history that was like a roller coaster. Uh, God raised up the nation of Greece and gave it a culture that prepared the groundwork for understanding the gospel. Greek culture was famous for its intellectual pursuits. Among the early Greek philosophers were the sophists, what the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy calls a group of itinerant professional teachers and intellectuals who frequented Athens and other Greek cities in the second half of the 5th century before Christ. In return for a fee, you know, everything done for money, (laughs) the, the sophists offered young, wealthy Greek men an education in arete, Virtual, excellence. Yeah. Protagoras, Gorgias, and Thrasymachus. There'll be a quiz at the end of the class. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, <clears throat> the sophists included these three main characters and others. They started with a worldview that was based on human autonomy. Men such as Protagoras, Gorgias, and Thrasymachus reasoned and they taught that knowledge is limited to what we experience with our physical senses. Knowledge includes our human observation of the physical world and the words that we use to describe that. For the sophists, truth was relative and subjective. They taught that everyone's perception of the world around them is different. So there's no, no absolute truth or knowledge is possible. In fact, Protagoras went so far as to teach that man is the measure of all things starts and ends with us. And so therefore the sophists question everything. Their outlook was marked by subjectivism and skepticism. They denied or rejected all objective universal standards. They regarded man as the sole Factor in determining the meaning of everything, they challenged the popular belief in the Greek gods, they questioned traditional Greek morality, and they concluded that each person should seek his own self-interest. Does this sound familiar? This office had great and lasting influence on Western thinking. They stimulated people to begin to think about the world around them, and we find much of their thinking and conclusions in our culture today. But in the end, they wound up arguing over trivia. And ultimately, they became concerned only with their own self-interests and their own well-being. Later, about four centuries before Christ, Socrates entered the stage, and he also started with a worldview based on human reason. <clears throat> now, Socrates was intensely serious about finding truth uh, and, and a solid foundation for knowledge. He taught that the human, uh, the human soul, the, the psyche, is the foundation for knowledge. He sought knowledge to govern people's conduct and their. Morality and, and to give a basis for the, um, for the ideal society. What would be the ideal society? And he said the philosopher's task is to arrive at a rational understanding of virtue and other qualities. For example, <clears throat> and, unless you know with your mind what justice is, how can you be fair? So Socrates actually helped pave the way for Christian thinking. He was intent on finding truth and a solid foundation for knowledge. He saw knowledge as as linked to some, some universal truth beyond just the mere facts of the world around him. In New Testament times, Scripture tells us that the Apostle Paul went into synagogues and marketplaces and reasoned with people and religious leaders to determine the truth of the Christian faith. But way back, Socrates never linked knowledge with the God of the Bible as the source. And, of course, he lived long before Jesus came. <coughs> Plato, who was Socrates' student, also worked from an internal worldview. He taught that human reason is the basis for knowledge. Plato argued that individuals start from ignorance and then they add what they experience with their senses. And he said individuals become progressively more enlightened as they Leave these sense experiences behind and study what lies beyond the senses, these first of course, mathematics and and then a perception of unchanging absolute eternal forms, much as his teacher Socrates had had taught. Plato had a concept of an ideal world of pure ideas and spiritual forms. He said the world which we see with our eyes and we touch with our bodies is, is in reality only a world of shadows. It's a copy of the eternal world of spiritual forms which the pure soul can attain by philosophic contemplation. <laughs> Various philosophers have taken that idea and they've shaped it in ways that to this day still influence our Western thinking. But to each of those philosophies, the journalist asks, how do you know? How do you know that you're right? Is there any way or any one who can say definitively That's the correct understanding. And the answer, of course, is no. Apart from someone in authority coming into our world from outside and bringing that solution, bringing that answer. So working from our internal sources, we never can be sure. Next in line was Aristotle, and he worked from an external worldview, although he he depended on reason to make sense of that world. He taught that what we sense with our eyes, our ears, our our touch, and, and so on, that's the basis for knowledge. Individuals start from sensory observation of the world around them. Aristotle said, I... Understand, in order that I may believe. He understood life through analysis, probing, categorizing, observing, indu- excuse me, induction—that's reasoning from particular facts or individual cases to a general conclusion—and deduction, reasoning from the general to the specific. And Aristotle said, reason is the means to discover truth and knowledge. But, once again, the annoying journalist asks, the annoying journalist asks, (laughs) how do you know? (laughs) How can we be sure that the conclusions we reach, the understanding that we think is right, really is the ultimate truth. So what conclusions can we say that the Greeks, the the Gentiles in scriptural terms, reached as a result of their philosophy? Well, they started from internal sources, their, their reason. And in the case of the sophists, they became skeptics, doubting that people could achieve true knowledge. Socrates and Plato and Aristotle believed that reliable knowledge is possible because it rests on unchanging universal forms, ideas, that can be discovered by human reasoning. But they believed that human reason is autonomous, that it functions by itself. It's independent of any outside teaching or, or sources. They believe that human reason is self-sufficient and that human reason is essentially good. And ultimately, they believe that rational man can achieve salvation. They define that as the good life. We can achieve that by our own effort. How do you know The ultimate critique of Greek thought comes down to that question. The Greeks had an idea of ultimate truth as existing somewhere beyond this world. So they called it logos, truth, the word, ultimate meaning. Ideas coming to you? (laughs) Thank you. Good answer. (laughs) To the Greeks, the Gentiles, the Logos was a force or a power that made everything in this world run and gave it meaning. What they did not understand was that Logos was connected with the God of the Israelites, the God that we worship and that we know through Jesus Christ. The Greek gods were more like supermen. They were not the God whom we know as the author and sustainer of all creation. Can't believe I'm ahead of time. So the evidence of God's existence was everywhere around the Greeks, and yet they didn't recognize it. They didn't understand. They didn't connect the evidence with a person, with God Himself. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans in chapter one that what may be known about God is plain to people because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what's been made so that men are without excuse. But Paul says men have suppressed the truth. And, quote, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, Paul said, they became fools, And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Still, God used this Greek culture for his glory. The questions that the Greeks, the the Gentiles, were asking went unanswered until the gospel message came Through Christ and the early church members. This Greek culture by then had spread throughout the Western world and provided the foundation for understanding the gospel because the gospel of Christ answered the questions that the Greeks had been asking for five centuries. The gospel became the light the understanding that the Gentiles were seeking and that's why the gospel took root and spread so quickly and so pervasively in the Western world. See, God's plan to recall to himself the nations he had scattered in Genesis 11 was not negated. It was not thwarted by man's ignorance and refusal to acknowledge the truth that was right there at his fingertips somehow or other this took a lot longer to do at home (laughs) and I'm glad for that (laughs) because usually it works out the other way so that's it for today as far as this lesson goes Uh, next week we will We'll connect the dots. We'll talk uh, we have talked here about you know an introduction and a bit of personal introduction. Um, we've talked about basic rules of journalism, and we've talked about reason. Next week we'll talk about revelation and faith, and we'll bring it all together in the person of Christ. So stay tuned. Okay, so we say. Goodbye. <laughs> Now, do you have questions, or is there anything? Because you can't get into this sanctuary upstairs. And I'm sure the service is still going on, so we've got time, and we can we can talk if if you have questions. Bob, yeah. uh, you mentioned Romans, 1. Romans one, yes, about creation. About creation. Yes, that's a good point. Uh, God doesn't leave any stone unturned. Uh, the evidence is there, both in your reasoning and in what you see around you. And if you're, you know, that's why Jesus would say, "He who, you know, has ears to hear, let him hear." You know, open your eyes and see. Uh, and Paul brings that up. Yeah, thank you, Bob. That's that's good. That's Romans one. Chris? Yeah, as Bill, um, so let, let's just take something like the Quran, if you or anyone else have the Quran and applied to take journalistic principles and concluded, okay, this did not pass journalistic principles, then why is it not? I have not conducted a full study of the Quran at all, no. Um But I would say off the top of my head that it was largely the and this is where you get into, into the history uh, it's you know, largely the work of one man obviously God's re- supposed revelation to, to Muhammad and he sees that uh, as the strength of the Quran and says that the, the fallacy of the Bible is that it was written by so many people over so many years you can't trust it um, Okay, Muhammad, how, how do you know? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> the interesting thing is, and I think that's the strength of the Bible, is that it was written by so many, over so many years. And the story is consistent among all of those different authors and reporters over all of those years. It's a continuous story from stem to stern. And, yeah, there are little minor things in here that still puzzle us. I I will grant you that. But the overall story is, is consistent. That, to me, is something more than just, you know, human effort because... It took longer than a lifetime to write the scripture, and yet the story holds together. And that's why I can sign off on this, if, if you will, um, as being true. It's because it's confirmed by a number of writers over a long period of time. You know, This is not just made up by one person who claims to have the truth that nobody else has. So how do you know? I think the evidence is in in that longevity of writing. Steve? I'm sorry, you just gave the answer right there that the fact that the Quran was written by one person and you do not have two or three limits that There you go, yeah. And how do you know that Muhammad was correct? When Muhammad died, he's still dead. <laughs> Although I, I think, if, if I understand it, there's something in there about he ascended into heaven on a horseback or something. Like that, I, I don't know. Don't don't quote me on that. But, um, but yeah. But but the whole idea that, that Jesus came back. And he appeared to all of these people and he said, here, you know, look at my hands, look at my feet. Here, Thomas, come here. You know, this, this is, this to me carries real weight. I would say probably. I can't remember exactly which ones. It's been so long that this light switch got turned on that I, I don't remember that anymore. And I would say as of today, um, yeah, there are, are certainly passages that, that you know, we, we all struggle with. And what does that really mean? But, um i I think the overall the consistency of it and the message all hangs together so well that even those areas that I can't quite be sure about um, you know i'm i'm sure I'm sure that there's an answer out there somewhere uh it's the um it's the chicken truck story that my friend Ed Rouse is so fond of. Um, humorous little thing. We had um, a story where a a truckload of cattle had overturned um, someplace. I don't even remember anymore where that was. This was years ago. And, um, you know, the cattle got out and they are roaming all over the highway and it brought traffic. This is an interstate highway. And, you know, obviously it brought traffic to a screeching halt. And, and, uh, you know, people were out there. They police and others, you know, trying to round up these, uh, moo, moo on the run, you know. And, um, sometime later there was a truckload of chicken that also overturned. I think it was on interstate 78 between Harrisburg and Allentown. And I got a call from a, a station, a couple of stations about the thing. And, uh, yeah, the truck had spilled its load and, you know, all, here we go again, this kind of thing. And, um, then the report began coming to me about, you know, the, you know, the police are out there trying to round up all of these chickens, and you can just imagine what that site was, you know. And something down here, don't, don't say that. We do know, I did know from talking to the state police, yes, the truck had overturned, and yes, it had spilled its load, and it was a load of chicken. But then there were question marks. And about 15 minutes later, 20 minutes later, I got a call from a TV station and said, if you are reporting at all or tempted to report that it's a truckload of chickens out there running all over, don't. It was a truckload of frozen chicken. LAUGHTER Yes, it had spilled its load. Yes, it made a mess on the highway and traffic could come to a halt because it was all over the road, but they were cold. <laughs> um, and and uh, that's, that's making assumptions, you know. Uh, this story was like that one, therefore this story must end this way. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily. Ask the questions. Don't take anything for granted even the stupid questions. All right, I've got one of questions. Okay. So a bunch of philosophers are having a conversation. Aren't, are there Jews around? And might a prophet walk in to a conversation, a Jewish prophet walk into a conversation of uh, these philosophers? And have you imagined that? Or has somebody written about that? Or- Don't recall if anybody's written about that. Some, that's a great, great possibility. Um, and what would the what would the outcome be a punchline obviously <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i think i think next week when we talk more about logos you you'll see possibly how those pieces of this puzzle fit together and what that story could turn into so i won't i won't spoil that. I'll make you come back next week. Tune in next week for, yeah. Paul? Yeah, I, I think that actually did happen when Paul spoke to the philosophers on Mars Hill. Oh, on Mars Hills, That's right. Yes, you're right. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't recorded there. That's one of those things that, yeah, you'd like to get your hands on the copy for that, you know, and... Obviously, not everything is, is written down in the scripture. AP didn't report. What's that? AP didn't report. No. Uh, we we uh, were covering other stories that day. <laughs> I, I was busy that day. <laughs> Sandy? Uh, quick question. If you need um, more than one person to uh, check up on something, I'm asking how you do that with the poetry book. Song of Solomon um, There, I think you have to go back to the historical records, my mention of that, and you have to see how that fits, how the, what's in the poetry books fits with the other narrative that's in the scripture, and compare scripture with Scripture. Yes. Did you hear his his question? If you have an outside authority come in uh, to say this is what's true, wouldn't that outside authority have to have full knowledge of everything in order to be able to say this is true and that's false? And the answer to that is yes. Who is the authority that can say that? I know everything. exactly yeah that's exactly what God has done and has taught us he has become the outside authority coming into our space and time and we will talk more about that next week also but that's exactly where this goes you know, otherwise it's you make a good case but how do you know that your thinking is right how do I know that my thinking is right Somebody knows the answer to that. And it's the one that's created us. More? Anything else? Um, the question I have is, you know, you grew up in the church and all the so I think uh, if I was on the outside, I might say you're working to read. It. You don't know Right, I'm Biased. Concerned. And he agrees with me. <laughs> um, yeah, that's well. That that was the question that I, I had uh, that that sent me on this on this uh, exploration. Uh, I knew that my faith worked, as I said. You know, it, I could see it in people's lives and stuff like that. Saw it in my own life. There, there was, that was not a question for me, but I couldn't explain it to other people as. That question that you 've just raised, how uh, what do you do to people uh, with people who come from the outside and for whom this is new or who are skeptics or whatever and i didn 't have the I didn't have the words. I knew all the Sunday school answers. I knew our Christian lingo, our Christian vocabulary, all the code words that we use to shorten things. You know, you mentioned you know, the word salvation. We know what that means. We don't have to go through a whole hour-long study of the doctrine of salvation or something like that. You know, these are shorthand terms. But what about the guy that comes in from outside? And that's what I couldn't, I couldn't answer. And... Um, my dear wife um, had, was working in Media at the time, <clears throat> and the new bookstore opened up there. Some of you may have known it, called the Salty Fisherman. Um, and she came home one day and, uh, from work, and she said, "Hey, I was out at my lunch hour, and I happened to see this new Christian bookstore that's in, in Media, called the Salty Fisherman. I'd like to go up and see it. Let's go shopping on Saturday." Oh good. Yeah. Husband just loved to shop, you know. <laughs> but happy wife, happy life. Yes, dear, we'll go. <laughs> Best uh, advice I ever had from the senior pastor, George Epiheimer, over at Mount Hope, was he says I always have the last word in my home And I said, Really? He says, Yeah. See say, yes, dear. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the most godly men I'd ever met. But then anyway, so we went to the <laughs> we went to the Fishman and walked in. And that was a very different bookstore. Um, They carried, it was almost like going into a library, and they had a lot of really good, solid books there, not just the Christian fluff that you so often see in the little tchotchkes that you buy. Oh, this will make a nice gift for someone. There was was stuff there. And I started reading the titles, and the one that caught my eye was by James Warwick Montgomery. I don't think the thing's in print anymore. It's called Christianity for the Tough-Minded. Uh, oh, here's it. I pull it off the shelf. I can tell you exactly what it looks like, even to this day. And it was written to college students. It was a publication of University Press. And it was questions that university students were asking about the Christian faith. And I mean really difficult questions such as you allude to there. And it just captured me and I said, oh, that's neat. And he made reference to some other authors and stuff and I started to find John Stott and Francis Schaeffer and Os Guinness and some others. And um, so uh, I think Linda went home with this little (laughs) gift bag of something and I went home with all these books. And just read voluminously. And that, I began to understand how this thinking works. How these pieces of the puzzle begin to fit together. And then God began to show me, you know, every story that you write, you have to be able to prove that this is true. You know, the only defense against libel is the truth. Legally. The only defense against libel is the truth. So if you say, I have libeled you by something I've said, I have to be able to prove that this is what is true. And the courts will find every time in favor of the truth. And so I thought, whoa, if I could put these pieces together. Gradually it began to come together that that's how this was working. The stuff I was doing for every news story applied to the scripture. And when I got that, then this jigsaw puzzle began to all come together. And many of you know that that, uh, Linda and I teach at the Bethany School of Missions over in Alicante, Spain. Uh, We've been doing that the last four years since the school started. And they asked me to teach this apologetics course each year uh, because Spain is an atheistic country. Um, we we think of it as a Catholic country, but because of the politics and the the side that the church, that is the Catholic church, took, uh, you know, in the Franco regime and so on, from the Spanish Civil War on, um, everybody there turned their back on the church for the most part. So the Catholic church, uh, there is probably people 80 years old and up. Everybody else is an atheist, but they will listen to a defense of the scripture if you can give them a good, sound, reasoned presentation of it. It takes about four years to make a Christian there. But boy, when they believe, they go from here to there and put me to work. There's no learning curve. It's just boom, boom, boom. So um, anyway... Um, the question of how do you know came up in the very first apologetics course that I did there, and it took on a life of its own, and the kids just glommed onto it. They say this we can use with our friends, and our teachers, our profs that give us a hard time. So, and so that's where how do you know came into being, <laughs> and they're right. They use it again this year in witnessing to people down on the beach. And the people who didn't know couldn't answer the question. Well, then let me tell you the story. And here's God's newspaper. Well, we're out of time now, so I thank you very much for your attention. Come next week, we'll, we'll connect the dots. I appreciate it.